Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 41, The Duke's Rebuke. In this episode, the last of the salients will find that despite all his efforts, the tide of history cannot be stemmed, almost leaving him in exactly the same place his father ended up in 1076. But before we start, just a reminder, the History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is to sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. You'll find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Andrew, Martha and David who have already signed up. Last episode, we left Emperor Henry V in May 1111, returning from his journey to Rome in triumph. The Pope had confirmed the full ancient rights of investiture to the Emperor. Not just that, but the Pope had also promised not to bother him ever again about investiture and had renounced any possibility of ever excommunicating him again. And, to top it all off, Henry V had secured the unimaginably rich inheritance of the great Countess Matilda of Tuscany upon her soon-to-be-expected demise. With more than anything anyone could have hoped to achieve, why the long faces? Even amongst Henry's friends. Henry's close supporters, many of them bishops and abbots, were still reeling from the events in Rome that happened before the Pope's hand was dragged over the signature box of the agreement by a rough-looking imperial retainer. You see, before all this heavy-handedness, the Pope had made a deal with the Emperor, whereby the Church would hand back all the counties, the estates, the market rights, the mills and mints that had been awarded by the Crown, and in exchange, the Emperor would renounce any involvement in the selection and investiture of prelates. But even though the deal collapsed as soon as it had been made public, for the bishops it was the ultimate betrayal. The king had been willing to strip them of all their ancient rights and privileges. After all these centuries of services to the kings, he was happy to drop them. But it's not just that. If Henry V had indeed taken back all the church's lands and rights into his direct ownership and control, he would have been able to establish an all-powerful central authority. Something his father, with much less resources, had tried to do in Saxony. Imagine what the son could have done with more than a third of all the assets of the country. A tyranny is what the bishops, the abbots and their cousins, the dukes, the counts, the lords and the knights would have called it. It did not happen. But from this moment onwards, all these bishops, abbots, dukes, counts, lords and knights no longer believed the king was the guarantor of their rights and freedoms. They now had to protect these rights by joining up together against the king. It is from now that the documents begin to call all of these potentates, be they secular lords or bishops or abbots, as princes. And these princes began to see themselves as the mutual guarantors of each other's status against royal overreach. The imperial church, if it ever was under the orders of the king, no longer sees itself as an instrument of the crown. These men, and very few women, were princes now, focused on expanding their territorial power and supporting their brethren. 
How suddenly this shift happens becomes visible in the person of Adalbert, Chancellor of Henry V. He was a member of the inner circle of Henry's government. He was actually even one of those handful of people involved in the initial negotiations with the Pope Charles II that had led to that infamous deal in February 1111. In recognition of his service, Adalbert was made Archbishop of Mainz that same year. When Adalbert arrived in Mainz, he decided that his archdiocese could not rely on the protection of the emperor. What was needed was a strong, coherent territory, the power base, that would allow him in extremis to give the dos fingos to the emperor. Mainz being a mere 30 miles from the salient heartland around Worms, the archbishop quickly found himself in a direct conflict with his former boss. The ultimate point of contention was the castle of Trefels, at this point still a modest fortification on a very promising location in the Palatinate. The two former friends came to blows, and after alleging Adalbert was about to attack the castle, Henry V had the archbishop arrested in 1112. That resulted in an outcry, not just in Germany, but even in Rome, where Pope Charles II intervened on behalf of his former adversary. Henry took the Trefels and turned it into an imperial fortress, probably one of the most famous ones. For a hundred years it will be the place where the imperial regalia will be held for safekeeping. And it is also where King Richard Lionheart will be imprisoned. The conflict with Adalbert was not the only indication that things weren't right. But Henry V maintained the outright facade of a ruler who acted always in concert with his magnates. Backstage, he was gradually building a royal territory in the Rhineland. Sort of what his father had tried to do in Saxony. For that, he again relied on his minister Jalis, who he supported across the whole of the realm. When he was called to adjudicate conflicts between nobles and minister Jalis, it seemed to the magnates that the emperor would always side with the minister Jalis. One of these disputes escalated, and the Duke of Saxony, with some of his magnates, decided to abduct one of these litigious minister Jalis, who had appealed to the imperial court. That was a direct challenge to Henry's authority. Henry V deposed the Duke of Saxony, who was, you may remember, a certain Lothar of Supplinburg. Remember the name, he will be important. In this initial effort, Henry V was successful. He apprehended the Duke as well as a number of the Saxon nobles. One of them had also at the same time been Count Palatinate, holding lands along the river Rhine adjacent to the Salian lands. Henry V removed the title and the lands and granted them to one of his closest followers. This was again another move to create a coherent power base around his family lands. In 1113, Henry V looks as if he is on top of the world. His adversaries in Germany have not been able to foil his plans and he calls a royal assembly in Mainz. It is a splendid occasion, where Henry V formally marries Matilda of England, now 11 years old. The Duke of Saxony, Lothar of Supplinburg, submits, and is received back in the imperial grace. But some of the Duke's co-conspirators are not so lucky, and remain in jail. All that leaves a bitter aftertaste in the mouth of many a mighty lord. 
the attempts to strip the church of its lands, the expansion of royal territory, the support of the ministerialis, and the incarceration of Adalbert and the conspirators make Henry V look very much like his dad. The rebellion starts in Cologne, where the archbishop and the now very powerful city reject imperial rule. When Henry V's attempt fails to besiege and subdue Cologne, the rebels are joined by various Lothringian nobles. They are always willing to push back imperial control. Now Henry has to fight these combined forces, and he loses again. Now the whole of northern Germany is encouraged to refute imperial authority. At that point, Henry V changes tack and calls a royal assembly in Goslar to debate the issues and maybe find a compromise. But when nobody who matters shows up, the severity of the situation is becoming clear. A major military conflict is now inevitable. On February 11th, 1115, in a place called Welfenholz, the armies of Lothar of Supplinburg, mostly Saxons and people from the Lower Rhine, face up against the imperial army under Henry's general, Count Heuer von Mansfeld. It seems that at some point the Saxons were under severe pressure, and the imperial general, Heuer von Mansfeld, sets out to bring the Duke Lothar of Supplinburg down by himself. In that attack, the imperial general was felled by a Saxon nobleman. After that, the army lost cohesion and the Saxons prevailed. Lothar uses his advantage and quickly consolidates his position in the north, occupying the Harz Mountains, including the silver mines in Goslar, as well as Westphalia. From this point onwards, Henry V will no longer have any power in northern Germany. The citizens of Mainz even force him to release Adalbert, their archbishop, who immediately joins Lothar's army. The excommunications had been raining down on Henry since 1111, not from the Pope himself, but from various bishops and archbishops. He could initially ignore them, but now the bans are taking effect, kicking a guy when he is down. Bishops are leaving the imperial camp, as are many of the lay lords. The rebels hold an assembly in Cologne, where they endorse these excommunications. Henry's saving grace was that the southern dukes, the Stauffer, the Welfs and the Zeringer, remained loyal. In that respect, he was luckier than his dad, who had to fight both the north and the southwest. The lack of support in the south may have been the reason that Henry's opponents did not proceed to elect an anti-king, as they had done in 1077. From now on, there is this odd situation that the country is split in half. The north is run by Lothar of Supplinburg, while the south is held by Henry V and his allies. The two sides kept fighting along the fault line, which was more or less along the rivers Rhine and Main, but neither side was able to mount an invasion in their enemy's territory. In this gridlock, the news break that Matilda of Tuscany had died at the ripe old age of 69. Henry V sees this inheritance as crucial to tilt the overall balance in his favour. With the wealth of northern Italy behind him, he may be able to break his opponent's stranglehold and establish true imperial control of the Reich. This logic will become the mainstay of imperial policy for the next century. Henry V's ultimate successors, the Stauffer, will pursue a strategy of gaining resources and positions in Italy as a means to defeat their enemies in the north. 
In this, the first time the plan was implemented, it went surprisingly well. Even though Henry V had arrived without an army, he could take possession of most of Matilda's assets and award her imperial fiefs to loyal men. Whilst he was in Italy, opportunity came knocking. Pope Pashanis II had been expelled from the city of Rome. Now you may remember that the old aristocracy of the Crescentia and the Tuscolani had become casualties of the Gregorian reform and the subsequent destruction of Rome by Robert Giscard. By now, a new set of families were taking control. The two temporarily leading clans now were the Pierleoni and the Frangipani. The Frangipani had risen with the old system of city government, and one of their ancestors had been prefect of the city. They were based in the Colosseum, which they had turned into their private fortress. The Pierleoni were a slightly different sort. They were merchants and financiers who had most probably converted from Judaism in the late 11th century. They operated mainly as an urban family, with their headquarters in the former theatre of Marcellus, which they had converted into a fortress. At this time, several of the ancient Roman monuments served as family strongholds. The Capitoline Hill was the seat of the Corsi family, and the Palatine was held by another clan. The mausoleum of Hadrian had become Rome's most formidable fortification, the Castello Sant'Angelo. As in many Italian cities of that time, the ruling families lived in heavily fortified compounds to protect themselves against their rivals. It was one of these conflicts between the major aristocratic families that led to the expulsion of the Pope. Paschalis II had supported a Pierleoni candidate to become city prefect. That annoyed the Frangipani, who started rioting. The rioters gained the upper hand and the Pope, as well as his Pierleoni followers, had to leave the city. That meant the city was open for Henry V, who entered in early 1117. There was not much for him to do in Rome other than demonstrate to Pascalis that if he wanted his city back, he should call back his excommunicating prelates. But since he was there, why not celebrate a coronation? Maybe a quick word on coronations. There are two types. There is the real coronation, where an individual is elevated to a new status as king, queen, emperor or empress. And there are the festive coronations. These are sort of reenactments of the actual coronation, performed quite regularly at major gatherings like royal assemblies or on important church holidays. These were festivals meant to show off the magnificence and holiness of the monarch. The coronation in Rome in 1117 was probably a bit of both. Henry was already emperor, so for him it was just a reenactment. But his new bride had not yet been crowned empress so it may have just been intended as an elevation of her to imperial status. Now Henry's party planners quickly ran up against an obstacle. None of the cardinals still resident in Rome were willing to crown the young lady. Finally, a bishop, Maurice of Braga, could be convinced to put a crown on the head of the wife of the emperor. This ceremony, even in the widest definition of the word coronation, could not be regarded as a valid elevation of Matilda to Empress. For that, you need a Pope, actual or anti-Pope, or at least someone authorised by a Pope. Maurice of Braga was neither. 
Hence, when English history talks about the Empress Matilda, she wasn't really an empress. The proceedings were still irritating enough for the actual Pope, Pascalis II, to excommunicate the hapless Bishop Maurice of Braga. Now, this did not facilitate any further rapprochement between the Emperor and the Pope. In the summer of 1117, Henry left Rome, as he had to, if he wanted to avoid dying from malaria. And as we all know, come the summer, the Germans die in Rome. That allowed Pascalis II to get back in, thinking he was made of sterner stuff. Pascalis and his team stayed until January, when Pascalis suddenly died. The cardinals now elected Pascalis' former chancellor as Pope Gelasius II, a man widely seen to be willing to compromise. So Henry came down to Rome again in March 1118, but that frightened the brand new Pope no end. So Gelasius disappeared down south to Gaeta when Henry entered the holy city. And then Henry V did something odd. So odd, I simply have no explanation. He made that hapless bishop Maurice of Braga the Pope, who took the papal name of Gregory VIII. Why Henry decided to create a schism, something that had so badly hampered his father's room to manoeuvre, simply inexplicable. Gregory VIII had no material support in Rome or elsewhere in Europe. It might be that Henry V followed demands of his Roman allies, the Frangipani, but their loyalty should not be worth a full-blown schism. It seems Henry realized his mistake almost immediately. He made no efforts to push his new antipope, even in Germany, and by June the emperor left Rome to leave Gregory the not really eighth, to his fate. And that fate would be to be captured by the true Pope four years later and made to ride through the streets of Rome, sitting naked backwards on a donkey. This punishment was not unknown and had been meted out to Roman prefects and popes, but in that case was particularly apt, as Gregory VIII's nickname was the Spanish Ass. The pointless creation of a schism did not just blight the life of the poor Spaniard, but also meant that the new Pope Gelasius II finally came off the fence and publicly excommunicated Henry V. With that, the temperature in Germany was rising and the opposition was prepared for a royal assembly in Würzburg where the emperor was invited to defend his track record. That sounds far too much like a rerun of the assembly at Tribur where Henry IV had been threatened with deposition. And that had led immediately to Henry IV kneeling in the snow outside the castle of Canossa. Henry V had no desire for frostbite and returned to Germany in haste. When he arrived, the idea of a royal assembly dissipated quickly, since the southern duke stuck with the emperor. Now, on the face of it, the situation looked almost unchanged, from when he had left. The north was held by Lothar, whilst his governors, Duke Frederick of Hohenstaufen and the Count Palatinate Gottfried, did a good job at preventing him moving south. But underneath the surface, things have changed. The princes no longer fought just for status, tributes and honour. They were beginning to build what we would later call principalities. They built castles to force their will upon those within their territory, 
constraining their respective rights and privileges. Lothar did a great job of it in Saxony, making himself the most powerful Saxon duke since Hermann Billung. And the same goes for his counterpart, Frederick von Hohenstaufen. Frederick did indeed defend the position of his imperial overlord, but at the same time he began acquiring lands and castles for his own private estate. The chronicler Otto von Freising will describe this period as the time when the Staufers were building their own private power base, their Hausmacht, as it will be known from now on. It was said of him that he would always pull a castle along the tail of his horse. So, the princes are on the rise. By 1119, the war between Henry and Lothar had been going on for four years, and both sides began to get exhausted. All in, the country had been in civil war for more than 40 years since the conflict first started with the Saxon uprising in 1073. Occasional periods of peace notwithstanding, the constant devastation had badly hurt the economy and had let Germany fall behind France and England in cultural and intellectual leadership. Even amongst his supporters, the pressure to bring this endless conflict to an end was rising. Another opportunity emerged after the Pope Gelasius had died after less than two years in office. His successor was Calixtus II, a Burgundian lord and distantly related to the emperor. He had initially been a harsh opponent of Henry V, but once he had ascended to the papacy had mellowed a bit. Calixtus indicated a willingness to negotiate and invited the German bishops to a council at Reims close to the Franco-Imperial border. Discussions between Henry V and the papal negotiators focused on a solution not dissimilar to the solutions found in France. Henry offered that the bishops and abbots would be freely elected and invested with ring and staff by the Pope, but that they had still to swear a full oath of fealty to the Emperor, and most crucially, that the churchmen were still obliged to provide financial and military support. This solution seemed to have been met with positive noises from the other side and Pope Calixtus was prepared to meet the emperor in person at the border town of Mouzon. The parties exchanged draft contracts as both the papal court and the imperial entourage travelled to the agreed meeting point. The German side specifically believed that all was agreed and all they would do at Mouzon was to put pen to paper, crack open the champagne and peace would be upon them. This may or may not have been the same on the papal side. But just before the two sides were to meet, the clerks on both sides began to stumble over a formulation in the draft contracts. The wording in the papal draft suggests that the obligation of the bishops to support the emperor had a voluntary element to it. And that was not acceptable to Henry V. The emperor, though taken aback by what he believed was a last-minute change of terms, offered to discuss with the princes. But in the end, there was no rescuing the negotiations. Disappointed with what he believed was papal duplicity, Henry returned home. Meanwhile, the pope's negotiators made up a story that Henry had appeared with a large retinue of armoured men intended on apprehending the pope. And so it was that the Council of Reims issued a full excommunication of the emperor 
and reiterated the total ban on investiture. All back to square one. But three years later, the two sides will finally agree what has been known as the Concordat of Worms. What it says is not earth-shattering in the slightest and absolutely not worth 50 years of war and destruction. But then, it was never really about the investiture in the first place. What it really was about, we should explore next week. I hope to see you then. And in the meantime, should you feel like supporting the show and get hold of these bonus episodes, sign up on Patreon. The links are in the show notes or on my website at historyofthegermans.com.